Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Last week, we talked about the role of a deacon. And to sum that up in a word, the role of a deacon is a servant. Uh, Tonight, we're going to dig a little bit deeper, deeper and hopefully be a little bit more clear on what are the responsibilities of a deacon. Now, to make this real and practical, I thought I would lead off by illustrating uh, what our bylaws say. I was looking at our bylaws, um, I guess, earlier today, because as I, I'd finished preparing this lesson and I forgot the obvious, I said, well, what do our, what do our bylaws say are the duties of a deacon? And so uh, there is a section that actually spells that out, duties of a deacon, and they're listed by uh, letters, you know, like outline format, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So seven duties of a deacon. Now, when I say this, I'm being inquisitive. The purpose of me raising this is not to create an issue, but hopefully to stir your curiosity. Because I think as time goes on in life, many times we forget why we do what we do. I know you've heard the story about the uh, young lady that was trying to, to cook a ham and it said to cut it in half and then put it in a small thing and put it in the oven, and she didn't know why the recipe called for that. She called her mom, who called her mom, and they asked around, and turns to find out her great-great-grandmother had a really small stove, and you had to cut it in half to fit it in the oven, okay? So you've heard that story, I'm sure, but the idea is, as time goes on, many times we forget, why do we do what we do? And so I want you to put your thinking cap on for a minute, And the purpose of tonight's lesson as we start out is to simply think about why do we do what we do. As I was uh, overviewing the duties of a deacon based on our bylaws, um, just to give you the short version, one said the obvious and said deacon's a servant. Well, we we covered that last week. Uh, One said guard the unity of the spirit uh, in the church. Uh, One said an advisory council. One said overseeing the discipline of the church. Uh, one said, uh, uh, assisting the pastor and, and administering the ordinances, which is baptism, Lord's Supper. Uh, one said, uh, deacon flocks. And then one said, uh, in the absence of a pastor, supply the pulpit, so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> honestly, I think one reason, and this is one of those things, what I like to do as a pastor is when I have a teachable moment and I have an opportunity to tell the congregation something that I feel like they need to hear, that most pastors wouldn't step out on that limb and say, that's what I'm fixing to do now, okay? Nod your head, okay? I think in the past, one reason why uh, a lot of men shy away from being considered a deacon in our church is they, if they look at this list or if they look at the uh, bylaws and they go, oversee the discipline of the church. Yeah, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. I don't want to deal with that, Okay. And men, if, if you look me in the eye, you know I'm telling you the truth, okay? So um, now the question is, is that particular duty biblical? Well, I won't answer that more than just raise the, the issue and, and ask it as a question. Uh, think of, look at everything we've read so far about elders, everything we've read so far about deacons, 
Um, here in a couple weeks, I'll do a review uh, because we've been doing this for a few weeks. I'll, I'll do responsibilities of a deacon tonight, requirements, the qualifica- qualifications of a deacon next week. And then two weeks from now, I will kind of do a comparison between elders and deacons so we both understand the difference of the two and yet how they complement one another. Now, with that said, let me lead off with this. Let me ask you some questions. Have you ever wondered why uh, the Bible says something about deacons' wives meeting a biblical standard? That's in 1 Timothy 3.11, by the way. We'll, We'll actually look at that next week, but I wanted to touch on it this week. And then I wanted to ask another question. Why is that necessary? Okay, uh, the deacons' wives don't attend monthly meetings. They don't make church decisions. So what's going on there? Okay, again, I'm asking questions because I want you to look at what do we know about deacons in the New Testament? We know that in Philippians 1.1, there were two offices in the early church, that of overseers and deacons in Philippians 1.1. And then, when you go to 1 Timothy, the other passage that mentions the word deacon is 1 Timothy 3, where it gives qualifications for overseers and then qualifications for deacons. I think it's interesting that the only time the word deacon is mentioned in Scripture, it's mentioned in the same breath as elders because they complement one another and they go together. Then the only other passage you have outside of Philippians 1.1 where deacons are mentioned, 1 Timothy 3 where the qualifications are mentioned, outside of that, the only thing else you can even point to that could even refer to deacons is Acts chapter 6. And we looked at that last week. We're going to look at it again this week. Um, So, let's... uh, Let me say this and we'll get started. In church life, it's usually what happens, more time is spent examining the requirements for deacons in 1 Timothy 3 than understanding the responsibilities of deacons. So tonight, I want us to make sure that we're looking at the Bible for what does a deacon do and not the bylaws. While bylaws mention things that deacons do, the Bible only speaks of ministry responsibilities, okay? Now, I say that because you could do everything that the church asks you. You could do everything that the bylaws say, and you could still stand before God someday, and he'd say, why didn't you serve? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Now, I don't say that to scare anybody. I say that to promote sober thinking. In other words, come to this issue tonight, come to this topic with a complete open mind that says, Lord, what does your word really say about this? Okay? If someone were to ask you, what biblically does a deacon do? Can you go to the scripture and answer that question? I'll go ahead and tell you, if I was a betting man right now, I'd say 98% of you couldn't. And I don't mean that to shame any of you, but I say that because when you look at the Bible and just do a casual surface reading of it, you go, it's not there. And I would say, yeah, you're probably right. 
but then you have to read again and go, okay, um, when deacons were mentioned in first uh, in, in Philippians 1, 1, it was assumed that the church had elders and deacons. And then when Paul uh, wrote that letter to Timothy, who was in Ephesus, they had overseers and deacons. And so it was assumed, I believe, that he knew what deacons were for and what deacons did. So he didn't write about that. He, he focused it on making sure you find the right men to serve. So what can we find from the Bible as evidence to understand the question, what do deacons do? Well, tonight as we go into the scriptures, I hope that I can help you answer the question, what do deacons do? So to start out for the biblical evidence of the responsibility of a deacon, I'm going to go ahead and tip my hand and tell you where I think it starts. It starts with taking care of widows who are in need. If I had a whiteboard up here right now, then I would have a, a picture of a, a target with a bullseye. The bullseye would be helping widows in need. Okay, We'll deal with the rest of the target in a minute, but the bullseye would be taking care of widows in need. Let me show you what I mean. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the whole company of the disciples and said it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, uh, full of faith, excuse me. Hang on, I, I, I tried to do two things at once and that didn't work well. Let me try that again. Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And this proposal pleased the whole company. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicor, Taman, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, here's what I want you to see. Seven men were chosen to make sure that the widows were being taken care of properly. In other words, go back and look at verse 3. The apostles say, brothers and sisters, they're talking to the whole congregation, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. What's the duty? Taking care of these widows who are being overlooked, who are in need. That's the duty. I think that is the closest thing you're going to find in the New Testament that justifies what a deacon does. Now let me explain what I just mean by that. Um, we, I think we looked at this last week. I want to look at again two key questions I raised. Uh, the first key question, why would God establish the office of deacon with specific biblical requirements 
and not tell us what the responsibilities or duties are. I mean, wouldn't that be frustrating? I mean, you have this uh, office that has, you know, stringent requirements, biblical requirements. You've got to be a certain kind of character of person to, to be considered to, to serve in this office. And then when you, you, you meet those criteria and you're willing to serve, and so you step into the office and you go, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that. I mean, that's madness, right? Like, who would do that? Who, who would be stringent on, on selecting not just anybody but certain men and then say, oh, I, you know, I'm not going to tell you what you're supposed to do. That, that's kind of madness, right? I love this quote that I found by Sean Couch. I don't know him, but I like his uh, quote here. He says, if a deacon is going to serve people when they're at their lowest, then he needs to be a man of highest character. And I think that's what it's all about. Like, why do you have biblical criteria that you have to meet in order to serve? Because if you're going to serve people when they're at their lowest, you need men of the highest character. In other words, the office of deacon is a position of trust and service, okay? It's a position of trust and service. Now, let's go a little bit deeper here. Again, I I want us to go past a surface uh, reading level of the scriptures and really dig a little bit deeper Take a linger a little bit and, and take a longer look. You, you've heard the three steps of Bible study, right? Observe, interpret, and apply, okay? When you study a passage of Scripture, the first thing you do is you observe. What's there? What does it say? And then you go to interpretation. What does that mean? And then you move to application. What is it telling me to do? Many times we, we skip the observation step, and we go straight to, what does this mean? Well, if you want to answer the question biblically, what do deacons do, you're going to have to camp out in the observation step for a while, okay? So here we are, we've looked at Acts 6. We know that in the early church, there were widows that were being overlooked, their needs weren't being met, it was so important that the apostles got all of the disciples together, had a congregational meeting, almost a business meeting, if you will, and said, all right, I want you all to choose seven men that meet this criteria, and we will appoint them to do this duty, okay? And it pleased everyone, and they selected seven men based on that criteria, and then to make it official, the apostles gathered around laid their hands on these men and prayed for them and delegated that task or duty to them. Now, since we've just ordained two, uh, two deacons, that kind of has a freshness to it, does it not? So, now let's move to 1 Timothy. Now, in 1 Timothy, I want you to look at chapter 3, particularly verse 14 and 15. What I'm going to do next is I'm going to go to 1 Timothy, which is one of the books of the Bible where overseers and deacons are mentioned, and it's mentioned in chapter 3, but I want to scroll down to verse uh, 14 and 15 because in those verses we learn the purpose of this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, and that's important. We need to understand not only what Paul said to Timothy, but why he said it, okay? 
So in 1 Timothy 3, look if you will in verse 14. Here is the purpose of this letter. Paul says, I write these things. I write these things. Now it's interesting. What has he been talking about for 13 verses? Right there in 1 Timothy chapter 1 through 7, qualifications for overseers. And then in verse 8 through 13, qualifications for deacons. And then in the very next verse, verse 14, I write these things to you. What's he talking about? The things he just mentioned, okay? I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, Paul, if you go back to chapter 1, I want to go there and read it, but if you read the early part of chapter 1, you'll know that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus because he had a job for him to do there at the church in Ephesus. And then halfway through his letter, he says, now I'm, I've written these things to you so that you know how the church is supposed to operate how the church is supposed to be. I hope to come to you soon. the, The implication is whenever I get there, I'll help you out, brother, with this. But if I if I'm delayed, I've given you instructions so that you know what to do. And he has instructions on how to deal with the false teachers in chapter one, uh instructions on prayer in chapter two, instructions on men and women in chapter two. Instructions on overseers in chapter 3. Instructions on deacons, chapter 3. And then he says, I've written these things. The things that I've just mentioned. The things that he just mentioned in the first two and a half, three chapters. Now that's a clue. Here's another clue. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Now again, remember what I said about observe, interpret, and apply. Uh, We're still in the observation step. We're we're looking at what's in the Scripture, okay? Don't assume nothing. Oh, I know it's in there somewhere. Let's look at what's in the Scripture. All right, when you look at what's in the Scripture, what you will find is in this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy, there are one, two, three character sketches. What do I mean? Well, you know two of them, they're obvious. There in chapter 3, verse 1, he gives a character sketch of an overseer. If anybody desires to be an overseer, an elder, a pastor, a bishop, all those things are interchangeable, okay? Then this is the kind of person they should be. And it paints a picture of the characteristics of of a person. This is the kind of person that it it takes to be an an overseer, an elder, a pastor. That's the first character sketch. That's in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Then he mentions deacons. And again, he does another character sketch. A person like this uh, is fit to serve as a deacon. And he paints a picture of the kinds of qualities uh, of character and integrity that you would look for in, in in a man that serves as deacon. And that's in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. But did you know there's one more character sketched in 1 Timothy? It's in chapter 5. 
And it's kind of peculiar when you first notice it because you're like, why is Paul taking like 13 or 14 verses to talk about widows? I want us to read that real quick because I want you to see what all he has to say about them. It's in 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 3. Support widows who are genuinely in need. That's the main idea. That's the headline. Support widows who are genuinely in need. And now we're going to find out what, what qualifies for a widow to be genuinely in need. Okay? In verse 4, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents for this pleases God. The widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also so that they will be above reproach. If anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. So... So far, Paul has said, you're going to have widows in need, and the church needs to take care of them, but the church can't take care of all of them, so here's how we're going to distinguish uh, if a widow's truly in need or not. If a widow has family, then it's the family's job to take care of that widow. Matter of fact, if that widow has family and that, those family members are Christians, if they don't take care of that widow, they're worse than an unbeliever. That's what he said, okay? Then, in verse 9, no widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she's at, and it goes into criteria. Now we've entered the character sketch for a widow. In other words, he says no widow is to be enrolled on the list for support. What does that sound like to you? You know what it sounds like to me? Acts chapter 6. Remember in Acts chapter 6, there were certain widows that were being overlooked for the daily distribution of food. And so they had to know who those uh, widows were that were being overlooked, that, that weren't being taken care of. And they appointed seven men specifically to make sure that those widows were ministered to. Well, once you... Once you take on a responsibility, then you have organization. You start keeping up with things. You have a list. And you're like, now, how many widows are we responsible for? I can see those seven having a meeting. And one of them says, hey, Stephen, hey, Philip, how, how many widows are we serving? Well, we've got, uh, you know, 300 last time I checked. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there, okay? Uh, but but <clears throat> I'm, I want you to use your imagination, imagining what it would have been like to be one of those seven men, and you're in a meeting, and you're talking about who are the widows that we are responsible for. And then by the time we read this letter from Paul to Timothy, he says no widow is to be on the list for support unless she meets certain characteristics. And here's a character sketch for a widow in need. She has to be at least 60 years old. Now, why is age an issue? Because at a certain age, she's no longer going to work anymore. And that's not an option. So if she has no one to take care of her and she's no longer of working age, then she's truly in need. So that's, that's why that is in there or the implication of why it's in there. She's at least 60 years old. She's been the wife of one husband. She's well known for good works 
and then it kind of clarifies that. That is, she, if she, that is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, now keep in mind that was a common thing in the Middle East in a desert climate, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Okay, so in other words, this is the kind of woman that the church is going to financially help and support. Uh, if she doesn't meet this criteria, then we're not going to help her. could be for different reasons. It could be because she's still of working age. It could be because she has family to take care of her. It could be she's not known to live a life of good works, and if we financially support her, then people think we're subsidizing a sinful lifestyle. All that in a box of rocks, okay? So kind of keep all that in your, in your head. Now do you see why this is an important issue? Now do you see why when Paul wrote to Timothy about if I'm delayed coming to you, I've given you written instructions on how the church of God, the pillar of, the, of God's truth should, should live, should conduct themselves, and he devotes half a chapter of a six-chapter letter to widows. Who knew, right? All right, let's, let's keep reading because he's still got more to say here. Then he says, verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows. And ladies, in case you're wondering, it doesn't say what their age is. It just means they're under 60. Okay, so if anybody asks me that question, all right. So refuse to enroll younger widows. Why? For when they're drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry and will therefore receive condemnation because they've renounced their original pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. They're not only idle, but they're also gossips and busybodies, saying things they shouldn't say. Therefore, I want, uh, I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us, for some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has widows in her family, let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can help widows in genuine need. There you go. You know, let me, let me try to give you a, a picture real quick to kind of give you a framework to, to peg out what we've just read. As I read this passage about widows, I see three kinds of widows. I see the older widow that's truly in need and doesn't have family to help her. I see a younger widow who is counseled to settle down and, and, and get married and raise a family and, and live a productive life. And then there's the mentioning of a widow. Um, oh, where is it? Um, verse 11, refuse to enroll younger widows for when they're drawn away from Christ by desire. They want to marry and, and they receive condemnation. Okay. Um, oh, um, no, no, no. Verse 6, that's the one I meant to write. It says, however, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And so there are some widows that are self-indulgent and they're dead uh, spiritually even though they're alive physically. Here, here's the way I would picture that. Remember the book of Ruth in the Old Testament? And you read the book of Ruth, chapter 1, you'll find that uh, Naomi and her husband and her sons, there was a famine in Bethlehem which is ironic because Bethlehem's the house of bread. There's a fa famine in Bethlehem, and so they immediately go to Moab, 
a different country bordering Israel. And they go over there. And so the people of God have left the promised land. And they've gone over here. And as time goes on, Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons die. And right there early on in Ruth chapter 1, you've got Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Three widows. And those three widows, in my opinion, illustrate what we've just read here in 1 Timothy 5. Uh, Naomi, the older widow, truly has no one to help her. Her husband's dead. Her two children, which were sons, they're dead. She literally has nobody. She doesn't have a mate. She has no dependents. She has nobody to help her, okay? She is the widow who is truly in need. Put her on the list. Let the church support her, okay? The second widow is uh, Oprah, okay? Not Oprah, but Oprah, okay? She's the, the forgotten one of the three in the book of Ruth. When Naomi says, hey, girls, you're not going to hang around long enough for me to, you know, settle down again and have more boys and raise them up and marry them someday. So, you know, go on home. Go on back to your own families. Go on back to your own gods. And uh, Oprah did. You don't hear anything from her. She went back to her people. She went back to her gods. Spiritually dead, even though she's physically alive. That's the second kind of widow. A widow that goes back into the world and pursues earthly, worldly things. And then the third kind of widow would be the, the uh, younger widow that Paul talked about that instead of going back into the world and doing her own thing, she finds a godly man, she settles down, she has a family, and she's a model of a, of a virtuous woman. And that's Ruth. Because Ruth says, hey, Naomi, where you go, I go. Your God going to be my God. Your people going to be my people. And where you die and, be, and, and you're buried, that's where I'm going to die and that's where I'm going to be buried. That's good, isn't it? And you only hear that in weddings. Think about that. So there are the three widows right there, okay? Naomi, Oprah, and Ruth. And do you see pictures and principles of that in 1 Timothy 5. Now, why is this important? Remember at the beginning when I let out with uh, why does the Bible have requirements for deacons and their wives? Because see, there is a big, there is a growing issue, okay? There is a growing issue, and it's creeping into Southern Baptists. If you thought we dealt with it when the Southern Baptist split a few decades ago and you still have the Southern Baptists and you have the cooperating fellowship Baptists that believe that women can be deacons. Um, you know, that should have settled it in the Southern Baptist Convention, but to be honest with you, that's still out there today. It is, okay? Um, I'll, I'll chase a rabbit, Herman, real quick. <clears throat> So when I was at seminary before I came here at Kansas City, and Midwestern is a very conservative Southern Baptist seminary, uh, most of the students at Midwestern are Southern Baptists, but there are quite a few that are not. And I was in a doctoral class 
uh, there where we uh, were studying different issues. One of them was baptism, one was um, Lord's Supper, and one was women in ministry, which it's really not about women in ministry, it's about women in leadership. It comes down to, can a woman be a pastor? Can a woman be a deacon? And um, we had two professors that taught this course, and I was there on campus for a whole week, and we spent a day on baptism and a day on Lord's Supper and a day on women in ministry. And uh, we had two guys that taught it, and they really, I don't know if they intended to do this, but they played the good cop, bad cop routine great. Like one of them was easy to talk to, and I want to talk to him. And the other one, no matter what you said, he would, he would basically just take what you said and he would just poke holes in it to really make you think, why did I say that? Why do I believe what I believe? Why, 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 why? Okay? Uh, he was tough. But he made you think. And so on the day that we talked about uh, women in ministry and leadership, two of the 15 students were women, and uh, the two professors said, let's pretend as a small group that we're a Bible study and we're about to organize a church and we're coming together to write our own bylaws and we're going to draft documents on who we are, what we believe, and yada, yada, yada. And at that point, he said, let's get started. He said, how many of you believe a woman can be a deacon? And hands went up and I looked around. My hand was the only one down. Then he said, how many of you believe a woman cannot be a, de a deacon? And I raised my hand. And he says, great, Corey, let's start with you. If you want to know the rest of that story, you can come to me sometime, and I'll be happy to share. But needless to say, I was like, oh, Lord, help me. But uh, why am I bringing this up? There's a reason why I'm bringing this up. When you look at Acts chapter 6, seven men, not women, were appointed by the apostles and the congregation to serve these widows in need. If you're going to have women deacons, that would have been a good time to say, we'll just let older women take care of older women. They didn't do that, okay? And then when you get to the instructions on qualifications for uh, overseers, pastors, uh, and then deacons in 1 Timothy 3, the assumption is men, but then it has something about deacons and their wives. Why is that? May I submit to you that is another clue, okay? That is another clue as to what deacons do. Deacons are called to serve widows who are in need, and it's my belief that um, the deacons' wives were expected to serve alongside their husbands in this ministry for two reasons, as a help and as a safeguard, because let's be honest, if you have a man going to a widow in need, and I'm not saying anything about the man, and I'm not saying anything about the widow, okay? So if you're looking at me going, Brother Corey, you talking to me? No, 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 listen to me, okay? Put, put, your, put your eyes on of what people used to think before you became a Christian, okay? Listen to me. And so you have you have a man taking care of, a, of, a, of a, a widow who's in need, and people in the world that don't know God and don't care about God, what do they see? He go to her house last week? He go to her house every week this month. 
call up a neighbor. Do you see that? Uh, you see that person over there again last week? Yeah, I wonder what they're doing. Yeah, I really wonder what they're doing. You know, the visits are getting longer. I'm just, I'm just saying, okay. I'm not saying anything about the the the, the deacon that's trying to help, and I'm not saying anything about the the widow is in need. I'm talking about if we want to avoid the appearance of evil, and Scripture teaches that, to avoid the appearance of evil, if we truly want to minister to people when they're at their lowest, we've got to have people of the highest character. And we've got to make sure that we safeguard people that are in certain situations so that the world can't point the finger. Okay? And that's the implication there. So the conclusion is the responsibility of a deacon is focused on ministry to the widows. Remember my target over here with the bullseye. The bullseye is widows. But I also think as we look at this text that it's flexible enough to include anyone who's in need. Now, let me say this. My first question I asked you is why would God establish an office of deacon with biblical requirements, and not tell us what the actual responsibilities are. The second question, and this is the last one, do you know what the scope of Scripture says specifically about widows? Now, I'm going to do this real quick. I didn't mean to go this long, but I think we assume too much today when we know too little. Um, here are a few notable scriptures about widows. I'm going to give them to you. There's five, five of them. I could give you tons, but I wanted to keep it simple. So four from the Old Testament, one from the New. Exodus 22, verses 22 through 24. Here's what the law says. Remember the law that God, God gave to Moses. The law says, you must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. That is, that's an orphan. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me, and I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. Now, before you want to throw a rock at me, that's the Lord talking. And that's the Lord going on record in the law. Don't mistreat widows. Don't mistreat wid uh, orphans. Because if you do, and they cry out to me, I've got their back. That's what God says. Now let's go to the next passage, uh, also in the law. Deuteronomy 14. Now this one's interesting. Uh, we know that tithing is biblical, okay? And a lot of times people want to leave tithing in the Old Testament, and that's another sermon for another day. But if you thought that the tithe in the Old Testament was just 10%, you need to go back and study that again, okay? Because there was more than one tithe. Okay, here's one of those ties you don't hear about. It's in Deuteronomy 14, 28. It says, at the end of every three years, again, this is codified, this is in the law that God gave to Moses to Israel. At the end of every three years, bring a tenth of all your produce for that year and store it within your city gates. And then the Levite, who has no portion or inheritance among you, the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow within your city gates may come, eat, and be satisfied, and the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. You might say it this way. That was God's welfare system. Take a tenth of all the produce, 
once every three years and let that take care of those who are in need. Maybe we need to call Washington and say, hey, got an idea. Why don't we see if that works? Okay. All right. Then there's another scripture, the third one. This is in the Psalms. Psalm 68, verse 5. God in His holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows, or depending on your translation, a defender of widows. Remember what He said in the law. If they're being mistreated and they cry out to me, I got their back. Okay? All right, let's go to the fourth verse, or fourth passage. Isaiah, this is the prophets. Isaiah 1, verse 15. God is talking to His people Israel through the prophet Isaiah. He's rebuking them. He's telling them to to quit their sin and to get right with Him. And here's what He says. Here's Here's His prescription. He says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. You might say that on the measuring stick of righteousness is whether or not you care for widows. Now let's jump to the New Testament. I'll give you just one verse. James, the Lord's brother, in James 1.27, he said, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Does that not puzzle you? It kind of puzzles me. Let me, tell you, let me tell you what my mind thinks that should say when I read it. Okay? My mind thinks pure... And undefiled religion before God is this, keeping yourself pure from the world. And everybody would say, amen. That's good, brother. That's, that's biblical. That's, that's good preaching. But that's not what it says. That's half of it. Half of it is to keep yourself unstained and pure from the world. The other half is to look after orphans and widows. Is that in there? There it is, James 1.27. I hope that gives you a sneak peek as to how God really feels about widows. It's so important, in my opinion, that He created an office in the early church called deacons, and He says, I want people of high character and high trust to do that the way it needs to be done. All right? Let me me hurry up and finish up here. Uh, Remember the word deacon? It's a transliteration, not a translation, because the translation of the the word that we translate deacon literally means servant. But they didn't know what to call it since it was an office uh, in in, in the Scriptures, and so they they transliterated it. Uh, It's a D, D, an E, E, an A, a C, O, N. They transliterated the letters from Greek to English and came up with the word deacon. But the root word, diakonai, it occurs in different places in the Bible. And I don't have time to go through all those, so I'm going to give you two, okay? I think they help us uh, understand what I'm saying tonight. Remember I said if I had a target here, 
the bullseye would be widows, but I also said that I believe it's flexible enough to include others that are in need. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let me give you two more verses. Romans 15, 25. At the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, he says in Romans 15, 25, right now I'm traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints. That word, that word serve, diakonoi, diakonoi, which is the root is translated deacon, okay, in our New Testament. He's going to Jerusalem to serve, remember I said a deacon's a servant, to serve the saints. Well, what, what, what's, the, what's the need? Well, in the next verse, because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So Paul has collected an offering in two different provinces from churches that want to be a financial support and blessing to the poor saints in Jerusalem. All right, one more verse, Matthew 25. Remember the parable of the sheep and the goats, and the sheep were on his right and the goats were on the left, and he, he begins to commend those that were sheep that ministered to Jesus. And, and here's what he says in, in Matthew 25, verse 44, or this is what they say in response. It says, And then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or without clothes, or sick, or in prison, and not help you. And remember, Jesus said, if you've done it to the least of these, you did it to me, okay? But if you read that verse again, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or without clothes, or sick, or in prison, and not help you? That word help is diakonino, which again means serve. And so I would say, that the bullseye of what a deacon does is minister to widows. But if you enlarge that concept as a target, it is to meet the practical needs of others, particularly those who are in need. And that broadens the ministry of deacons from just widows to helping people with practical acts of service. And I believe that's biblical. Now, Give me a couple minutes and I'll wrap this up and then we'll have a, a short business meeting. I'm going to put in a request. <laughs> All right. So here's what I want you to walk away with tonight. Number one, the pattern of a deacon is that of a servant. Okay, we talked about that last week. What is the, what is the role of a deacon? It's a servant. The, the very word that's translated deacon means servant. Okay. And then I like this quote I found. Uh, John Hammett, he wrote a book, Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches. Great book, and here's what he says. I've been leading up to this. He says, perhaps one reason why in the providence of God we are not given an explicit job description for deacons is to allow them the flexibility to serve in a variety of roles that allows the elders to focus on those things that most utilize their gifts and most match their calling. And that leads into this. I'm almost done. I think there's two principles that go into determining what deacons do. And it's embedded there in Acts chapter 6. It's what created the situation that led to the creation of the office to start with. The 
apostles at the time realized that God had called them to preach and teach the Word of God. And they knew that ultimately they couldn't do that and take care of all those widows and juggle everything and do it well. And so they said, God has called us to do this. We must do this. You choose seven men that meet this criteria, and we will appoint this duty, this task to them. I think two important principles in understanding what deacons do in a, in a, in a local church level is it's the, 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 the duties are delegated by the pastor and they're determined by the ministry needs of the congregation. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Uh, <clears throat> I don't mind telling you, I know what God has called me to do. Okay, There's a lot of things I could do. There's more things that I might should do. But you know that story about the guy that, uh, that was in charge of a lighthouse and he was given so much oil and his supervisor said, whatever you do, keep that light burning. And the light in the lighthouse needed oil to keep the light burning. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't too long. People in need came along. Hey, we don't have time to run to the other island. Can we give a little oil? Well, I'm not supposed to, but here's a little bit. And then here come another situation or another group of people. Hey, can we just borrow just, well, I, I shouldn't, but, but here's a little bit. And finally, the day come when there was a horrible storm that came and then nightfall came and the storm raged on and there were ships in the area and the light in the lighthouse went out. And the very purpose of the lighthouse was to warn ships, watch out, here's, here's rocks, here's an island. And many people lost their lives. And when the supervisor went back to the guy in the lighthouse, he says, you had one job. Keep the light burning. As your pastor, I know what my calling is. It's the one thing that I must do. And so that's where I think in a local level you have to delegate things out. And it's determined by the needs of the congregation. I'll close with this in our ordination service I shared this Johnny Hunt implemented this at Woodstock in Georgia early in his ministry that the deacons in their church would focus on care share and prayer I'll start in reverse prayer when we come together just like Gordon leads in prayer meeting on Wednesday night and I thank you for doing that brother and he calls on different ones to pray I think it's important for a congregation to see their deacons pray. Share. I think if a pastor needs to lean on other people that are trained to share the gospel and lead people to the Lord, I think the deacons need to be the very next ones in line that a pastor can trust to, to share the gospel and lead people to the, world, to the, to the Lord. And, and we'll talk about that in a meeting sometime. I don't want to assume that. I want to make sure we're all trained to do that. And then the final thing is care, and that's ministering to the needs of widows and others. And it's up to each local church leaders to flesh out what that looks like. We have to have a span of care, okay? I know in the past we had deacon flocks, and I think we're all in agreement we're not doing that anymore, okay? Now, some of you might be disappointed to go, oh, 
Well, come on, Brother Corey. Well, come on, Gordon. Well, hang on. Hang on. All right, let me, let me share something with you. If you look at our disciple-making pathway, we want people to know God, find community, make disciples, and serve others, okay? One of the things we're going to be focusing on moving forward is helping people find community. We want everybody that comes to either be in a Sunday school class or a D group. It'd be great if you were in both, and if you're not, you don't know what you're missing. But we want everybody to find community, okay? So with that just said, what do I mean? As a deacon body, as a pastor, I would be more concerned about people that come that are not in a group of any kind. That would be the ones we would say, hey, have you seen them lately? No, let's go check on them. Why? Because when people aren't in a group, then it's easy for them to fall through the cracks. If they only sit in a pew, and they never get in a circle and get to know somebody, then it's real easy for them to fall through the cracks, and all of a sudden they miss one week. Then they miss two weeks. Nobody says anything. And then they go to the doctor, and they get a bad report, and then they have to get put into the hospital. And because nobody knows anything, and because they don't tell anybody, the next thing you know, a few weeks go by, well, they didn't even check up on me. You see what I'm saying here? So you have to be proactive. You have to have systems in place that watch out for that. Now, I've kind of went long tonight. Forgive me. I guess I was saving it all up. So I'll close with this. Here's my challenge. Are you serving God and others? Because whether most of us aren't going to be deacons, I, I understand that. But we're all called to serve, okay? We're all called to serve. And there are people around us every day that need to see the love of God in action. Are you serving God and others, or are you serving sin and living for yourself? I know that's blunt, but ultimately, isn't that what it really is? We're either living for God and others, or we're living for ourselves. And I think we know which way is the better way to live. Well, I'm going to end it there tonight. We'll finish this next time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. Lord, more than anything tonight, Lord, I pray that we really thought through what we thought we knew and looked at the word. What does the word of God say? What do the scriptures seem to teach us about what deacons do from a biblical perspective? And Father, I pray that you'd create in all of us a servant's heart, that we would look at the cross, that we would look at Jesus and say, Lord, how can I live for myself now that you've died for me? And now, we, Lord, may we be servants of Christ and live because of what you've done for us, knowing we can never pay it back. But out of gratitude, Lord, we love you and we simply want to serve. Father, I pray for your will to be done in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.